Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. I'm John Boccasino, Senior Internal Communications Specialist at Syracuse University. Locally this week, we're going to have some food drives where people can uh, donate uh, food uh, that will go both towards, I think, Hendricks Chapel as well as towards the community food bank. I think these are great ways of dealing with the short-term need in our community. Those emergency food assistance providers are are great ways to deal with uh, food insecurity, even if it's occurring uh, in a cyclical way, uh, you know, providing several days worth of food can really be meaningful and help support our community. Our guest today on this week's episode of the Cuse Conversations podcast, I am thrilled to welcome on both Colleen Heflin, who is the Associate Dean, Chair, and Professor in the Maxwell School's Public Administration and Internal Affairs Department, and Leonard Lopo, a Professor in the Maxwell School's Public Administration and International Affairs Department, who also serves as the Director of the Maxwell X Lab and is the Paul Volcker Chair in Behavioral Economics. This week's topic is gonna be focusing on food justice, food insecurity, and the amazing research being done by the Maxwell X Lab, partnering with folks like Colleen and our great campus thought leaders here at Syracuse University. They were kind enough to join us for this week's episode, which again, we'll talk about food justice and food insecurity in and around the Syracuse and Central New York areas and so much more. Colleen and Leonard, thank you for making the time to join us today. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. The Office of Community Engagement is hosting Food Insecurity Awareness Week, a week-long program designated to raise awareness about food insecurity, both on the Syracuse University campus and in the city of Syracuse. And Colleen, I want to start off with you being a real expert in this issue of food insecurity. How exactly did you get started in this line of work and what drives your work with food insecurity? Uh, so I've been interested in different measures of economic well-being for a long time. Um, and uh, for a long time, most of the work was really done on income-based measures like poverty. Uh, but in 1996, the USDA created a new measure, the food security measure. And I happened to be one of the, uh, the early researchers that uh, sort of started playing around with that measure. And I found this to be a really uh, really impactful measure to think about is adding a lot to the discussion. So food security means having access uh, to sufficient food for all people at all times for an active and healthy lifestyle. And this to me is a little bit different than poverty. It adds a lot to the discussion. Um, And so I've spent a lot of uh, my career um, since 1996, sort of trying to unpack the causes and consequences of food security and how our uh, bundle of federal and state and local programs um, support food security, but also sometimes uh, with problems with implementation may actually uh, create problems as well with food security. It's interesting you talk about the designation, the differentiation between the poverty rate, which uh, unfortunately Syracuse has one of the highest poverty rates in the country at over 30%. Uh, one of the highest child poverty rates uh, in the country. There's, it's a real issue, uh, food insecurity in the central New York and the Syracuse area. How did we get to this point where you've got high poverty, you've got high food insecurity, and you've got children who are struggling to get their proper nutrition? Uh, I invite Len to join me in this answer as well. He uh, knows a lot about uh, the Syracuse area and has done a lot of work. I think this has to do with... Um, 
you know, issues again at the local, state, and federal level. Uh, uh, this doesn't happen overnight. This has been a long-standing problem, uh, having to do uh, partly with the economic situation, partly I would say having to do with uh, the educational uh, system and and retraining uh, of workers um, as the jobs available is shifting. And as well as I think there's some issues with uh, healthcare and um, access to um, resources that can support uh, healthy family structures. And then I think it's often a lot about structures. So I think, you know, I've lived many parts of the country and, um, you know, Syracuse city has a very, we have very small local uh, designations here. And so we have uh, the ability to um, have geographic areas that are doing quite well next to areas that are doing not so well. And I think if, uh, if there was more shared resources, we probably wouldn't see that disparity. We would uh, have a, a lot more, uh, a more common view, a uh, public good view of uh, the resource allocation. And um, that's my quick analysis. Len, I love to hear your answer to that. I mean, that's clearly a very difficult question. I agree with Colleen. I think that she highlighted a lot of the difficulties um, that we have in Syracuse. You know, we, we, we have a, an economy, um, a local economy that I think is trying to adjust to the new world. I've been very, you know, very um, impressed with a lot of the efforts that have been made locally with a lot of the groups that we've worked with. I think the city's thinking um, strategically now about how do you create jobs? They're bringing um, interesting uh, employers into the area. I think there's a lot of effort to do retraining um, to really kind of take advantage of some of this, this ideas of moving into a, a technology-based economy. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of effort being done right now. There are amazing people in the community that are um, you know, really being creative in the way that they're thinking about tackling some of our problems. So, you know, I, I, I'm excited to see where things are going. And I really like so much that Syracuse University is, is trying to highlight some of the issues um, that we have and, and to focus on food and how, you know, some of our problems might be addressed. And Len, I, I really, I'm glad you mentioned um, the, the the university trying to step up and, and do our parts. You know, we, we we consider ourselves partners with the city. It's not just the university operating as a beacon on a hill, there's town gown relations that are trying to be stressed and, and worked on to improve the plight of our of our neighbors. And your Maxwell X Lab, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about it's not just food insecurity issues that the X Lab focuses on, it's so much broader than that. Can you give our audience a little background on the Maxwell X Lab, its goals, and how you guys really try to put policy into practical application when it comes to issues that are affecting uh, citizens? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the X Lab is, uh, you know, about five and a half, getting close to six years old now. Um, I think the idea of the X Lab originally, when we started, was you know had a few goals. The the first was that we take some of the innovations that we are learning about through behavioral science, which I'll, I'll say more about in, in a moment. Um, it, I, I think kind of an innovative way to combine. Um, some of the different ideas that have, we've learned over the last really, you know, three or four decades that's primarily in psychology and bring those into social science. 
And the thing that the X Lab is trying to do is take these innovations and work with partners and communities, local governments, nonprofits, state governments, um, to, to, to try to figure out ways to use these innovations successfully. Um, we'll, we'll give you an example. Colleen and I have done a, a couple of uh, really, I think, cool projects that we can, uh, we can provide more information or example for you. The, um, the other big thing that the X Lab does is we do have a lot of evaluation. So part of what we think a lot about in the Maxwell School and, and our department in particular is, um, you know, how do we know whether these ideas are working, right? It's very, we're very data oriented. Um, there are lots of great ideas out there and we, you know, we want to know what is successful. It's, it's not always the case that some, you know, really good idea with the best intentions is working or is it working the way that we thought that it would, or is it affecting a different group than we expected it to? And so we have, you know, such experts on campus um, that think about these issues that, um, you know, that made a lot of sense to have partnerships where we work with, um, you know, again, work with communities, um, Syracuse being, you know, probably our, our, our primary partner, quite frankly, um, to, 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 you know, to see what is successful, what's not successful to use data and to, um, and to um, you know, like you said, to, to really combine the incredible work that's being done uh, by, by wonderful people and, um, and take the expertise that we have from faculty in areas like food, um, in areas like er other urban issues, some of which we're talking about now, education. Uh, we've, talk we've done work on taxes. You know, we've one done work on DEI. There's lots of uh, things that we, we want to try to understand better. Is it working? And that's really sort of the idea that we had originally with the X Lab. And, and the dean, uh, David Van Slyke, has been so supportive. Um, it's really been instrumental in the success of the lab. So it's really been a big team effort. With the partnership with Maxwell X Lab, with Lens Department, and then with what Colleen, with her work in food insecurity, real world application. So how do the two of you work together to study and assess this issue and then try to come up with some ways to implement uh, best practices to address this, this really crippling issue that's affecting our city? Sure. So let me start. So I've been researching uh, the SNAP, uh, commonly known as the Food Stamp Program, for some time. And one of the findings that I have um, helped illuminate is that there's a problem called administrative churn, where individuals at the point where they need to go through the recertification process to stay on the program often fall off for a variety of reasons because they don't understand what they're supposed to do. The, they don't get the message. There's um, lots of reasons. Uh, but this means people actually become food insecure for a short period until they can get back on the program. And so um, I knew this was a problem, but, uh, and I know the SNAP program very well in all the different parts of the recertification process, but I, what I was not, what I'm not is an expert in behavioral science. So I came to Len in the X lab and I said, how could we redesign this process better? If we can explain to you what the process is, can you help us figure out what's the best place to start to change the process where we could actually make it so people can get through this recertification process uh, and have more stability in their access to food resources? 
So Len, do you want to take over from there? Sure. So yeah, we, we had uh, um, an interested partner in Minnesota, actually. And um, Colleen had worked with them. She actually had a colleague at the University of Minnesota who had a great relationship um, with folks in, in uh, Hennepin County, Minnesota. And, um, and so we started to, to think about how might we communicate more effectively with the people on the SNAP program? How do we kind of reduce the burdens on them as they're trying to go through the process of, of recertifying and making sure that they stay on the program? And so actually Colleen and uh, my co-founder, uh, Joe Boskovsky, uh, went to Minnesota and spent several days there and learned a lot about the specifics of the program in Minnesota. And I think what we learned was there are a lot of rules um, that, the, uh, that the, the folks on SNAP have to follow and there's, they, they sort of lose track of deadlines and which forms need to be filled out when. And uh, you know, the first thing that we tried, which ended up being quite successful, was just to communicate with them differently. Rather than sending um, uh, a lot of messages through the mail, which was, I think, their primary mode, and that they called them they, you know, with, with, with robot, the robocalls, which I think we all are familiar with now, um, you know, they were not responding. They were not getting the information. They were not quite understanding um, what, what was going on. So we just developed a texting program, something that simple, mm -hmm. something really inexpensive. And instead of using these, these phone calls, these auto uh, dialers, um, the text messaging became much more effective. We were able to reach them. We were able to improve recertification for the SNAP program, depending on the group, you know, five to 10%, um, really at almost no cost. So it was really, um, it was really an effective way of um, overcoming a barrier and learning more about why this, this system wasn't working very well. And he's underselling this a little bit. So the innovation here wasn't just texting instead of calling. He used specific behavioral science insights about what words to use. And we actually used uh, randomized controlled trials with different messages to try to figure out what were the right um, the right sort of messaging strategies that worked best for this population. And so uh, whether it was about loss aversion or was it uh, more about uh, appealing to people's sense of uh, rights and responsibilities um, or um, the sense of like, this is how most people do this. So sort of get with the program, right? And so this, um, this insight was not just about texting, but the exact message and the exact wording. And we use this RCT approach so we could figure out which was most effective. So we left Hennepin County with a clear sense of um, not only the problem, but how to fix this. And we left them stronger than we found them. It's just really uh, exciting uh, collaboration. I, I am so thankful for the opportunity. Yeah, Colleen, that, thank you. That was really helpful. I, I mean, Colleen's absolutely right. It's, it's really strange, but it turns out the way that you frame the information makes all the difference in the world. So saying the same thing in two different ways, some, you know, can be an effective way and, and can be completely ineffective. And it's very, it's very important that you kind of um, think through that, that you, um, you test what actually works. There are principles at play here, but Colleen's absolutely right. You want to test. It's, it may be the case that something works really well in Syracuse, New York, and it doesn't work quite as well in um, Hennepin County, Minnesota. And so 
um, you know, not just trying to make everything fit in every place, but to actually test it. And I think, you know, um, that that's really something that's important for the X lab that we don't just say, oh, this is going to work, that we test it and we measure it and we do this in a pretty sophisticated way so that um, it's very convincing. It's convincing the people we work with. It can be convincing to funders, people who um, want to um, try new programs, like they want a certain level of evidence. And, and it's important that we reach that threshold. So absolutely, that's, that's what I mean. I mean, Colleen is really uh, such, a, such an X-Lab uh, team uh, person that she's uh, she's thinking about a lot of these things together with us and um, just makes for a better product and I think that's what's a lot of fun about the lab too that you um, that you you have such incredible scholars in so many fields um, here that we can join together and create teams that that just generate so much more because of our our collective efforts. It's fascinating when you're talking about you know, you have this best of intention uh, for, for people who are trying to get access to the benefits. And if they don't understand what they're being told about it, they don't understand the impact. Um, that's one way that the program can kind of go off the rails. And you mentioned randomized control trials or RCTs. We talked about that a little bit with the approach in Minnesota, but there's also the behavioral science aspect for it too, where again, best of intentions don't always come through because of factors that are out of, of our control. Can you expand upon that a little bit, Len, in your research and, and maybe how the X-Lab tries to account for that random chance of human beings and our behaviors being unpredictable and how you kind of contend with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the way that you described it is exactly right, um, that I think when we design policy, what we usually do is think, you know, this is our goal. This is where we'd like people to, to you know, we'd like to, to get, we'd like for people to, to be able to, to enroll, for example, in this particular program. And the best way to do it is to do this particular series of steps. But we're not always thinking that way, right? People are, are complicated. And so there are certain principles that we have found to be incredibly successful. Colleen mentioned a, a few of them a moment ago, loss aversion, which means basically that we often want to describe something as uh, a, uh, a benefit or a right or something that they have. And if they don't continue to, um, you know, uh, apply or sign this particular form to, to verify that they will lose something that is theirs. That's much more effective than saying you can get this benefit if you, uh, if you apply. We've learned things like default settings are massively important. So, if there is an understanding that um, you know you are um, you are uh, you you are automatically enrolled in this particular benefit, we, we're doing some work in a in a slightly different area on recruitment um, for uh, for for education. Um, so if the understanding is that this is your you know this is yours this is your benefit, and we're going to start with that assumption that people sort of take that mindset that this is something that is theirs. And, um, and they'll start from that premise rather than trying to get them to enroll, which, you know, which requires some effort on their part. It's really just a way of describing things. Um, it's kind of, the, it's, it's framing. It's really in some ways so simple, but we'd rarely do it in public policy and public administration. We, 
we try to enroll people, we try to get them to participate, and we don't realize that we're actually sometimes making it harder for them. So if we start from a position of, no, this is yours, this is, you know, you are qualified, you are, you, you are, we're going to enroll you in health insurance. It's yours. You've already qualified for it. Um, there's been lots of evidence that that's completely successful. We're going to um, help you fill out this FAFSA form, right? For those who are interested in going to college, this is yours. It's your benefit. We're going to help you. We're there to do it. Then people will take it up. They will, they will say, of course, please help me. But if we say, hey, this, this is a benefit that you can sign up for and apply for, we, we, people tend not to do it. It's really just a matter of kind of reframing a benefit for them that can make all the difference in the world. Can I just bring this back to food security too? Because there's another project we're working on together that has to, uh, to do with information that uh, military servicemen are provided at the point of separation uh, when they become civilians. And um, military food insecurity has been a real interest of mine for many years. And the point of separation is a time often of uh, uh, where a lot of military are having to cover their own housing for the first time. There may be challenges trying to find a job. Um, and so uh, there's often this, this, uh, this, this increase in food insecurity during this early period. And so I was interested in seeing what the military uh, provided at the point of separation. And the information was uh, challenging. It, it just wasn't very, very clear. And so I asked the Veterans Administration, could we see if we could try to make this a little better? Um, and again, I went back to Len, and we have been working to come up with some ways of simplifying the information um, and trying to make it so that individuals that read this flyer, understand the information that is being presented. And so we have some really encouraging results that I'm going to present to the food and security working group at the Veterans Administration later this month. And uh, again, like uh, IVFF has been a great partner in providing some support for this, uh, given their interest in food and security and uh, military transitions. Um, and I, I think this is just a great, uh, one of those great examples of Syracuse University uh, and partners working together to really use, uh, you know, sort of our expertise across multiple domains to really try to address real problems. And in this case, it's military food insecurity. Colleen, what are some of the ways that the, the research that Len and his partners and the X-Lab came up with from Hennepin County, how are we going to apply that to Syracuse to help address food insecurity? Locally, I think to address food insecurity, I think we should really be thinking um, uh, about strengthening our, uh, our systems generally. I think, you know, locally this week, we're going to have some food drives where people can uh, donate uh, food uh, that will go both towards, I think, Hendricks Chapel, as well as towards the community food bank. I think these are great ways of dealing with the short-term uh, need in our community. Those emergency food assistance providers are, are great ways to deal with uh, food insecurity, even if it's occurring uh, in a cyclical way, uh, you know, providing several days worth of food can really be meaningful and help support our community. And when it comes to the activities that are planned here on the university campus for Food Insecurity Awareness Week, 
What are some of the biggest ways uh, you feel that our staff, our students, and our faculty and alumni can get involved and try to combat this uh, food insecurity problem? Well, I invite them to take a, be involved in the food drives that are going to be occurring um, across campus. There's also uh, going to be uh, uh, some um, you know, opportunities um, to donate to Hendricks Chapel and support our local campus food bank, as well as um, many of the other uh, food bank and, and uh, food kitchens um, around um, Syracuse University. When it comes to the X-Lab, Len, I want you to tell our audience a little bit more about you and your background. How did you become so interested in this line of work? Because it seems like it's so fascinating taking something where there's a real world problem and how we tackle it and address it. You're, you're a problem solver. You and the X-Lab folks are working on ways to tackle these problems. How did you get involved in that line of work? Well, my, my background is very similar to Colleen's. Um, I have from, you know, from graduate school many, many years ago, um, had a strong interest in the low-income population, poverty programs. And so uh, a lot of my research over time has been looking into social programs and the, the effects that they have on families. Part of what I have noticed over time is, you know, Colleen mentioned this um, several times, data are hard to come by. And we often don't measure the things that we really would like to know. We often don't have it at the level of detail that, that we really want to have it at. The, the lab honestly came about, I think, through a, a variety of ways, one of which was my real interest in starting to do social science research that where we collect our own data and where we were running um, interventions that we could we could actually measure things where we didn't have to use evidence from a variety of sources and kind of tell a story that was consistent with what the data seemed to say, but that we could actually measure very specifically what we were trying to do. Um, so I think that was a large part of it. That is this, this evaluation part of what the lab does and why the behavioral part is so important. The behavioral side of this came from a, a, from a few sources. One is it was innovative. Um, that there were real um, successes that were being shown um, in the public sector um, in this area. There was a book called Nudge that was written in 2008 that I think was incredibly influential. In fact, the Nobel Prize was awarded uh, largely based on the ideas in that book that basically said, you know, let's take data Let's try to use these innovative ways to, to understand the way people behave and let's make impacts on the public sector. And a lot of that, you know, kind of came together along with a colleague that I, I mentioned earlier, uh, Joe Boskovsky, or at least I alluded to when we co-founded the lab. And he had done a lot of work in this area. It, it was a way, I think, to, um, to, to evaluate, to bring behavioral science where it was showing a lot of success. Joe had done some work in the area, and, um, and I was very intrigued by the idea of putting together a team uh, at, at the Maxwell School where we could work, as you said, to come off the hill and actually see if we can, we can make some change. How does the X-Lab take that data and, and, and churn out a measure of success? Like, How do you evaluate whether a program, whether a study, whether a project really achieved the goals and, and, and met its mark? Yeah, so that's what I, again, I so much what I like about um, the, the work that we're doing, Colleen mentioned the RCT, 
Um, you know, when, when, a, when a healthcare, uh, a new drug comes out, let's say a vaccine for a pandemic, um, we won't start providing that vaccine to individuals without it being a, a tried, a, go through an actual trial where we can figure out, is it working or isn't it? And, um, and we don't do that in the social sciences. At least we don't often do it in the social sciences. So um, that again is what was so appealing to me. This was a way for us to become very scientific in our approach to seeing what works in the public sector. Um, we can provide this information to the folks at Hennepin County or when we're working with the VA, right? We can do this the exact same way uh, a physician would, a drug company would to see if the, you know, uh, uh, Tony Fauci would, right? To see if this is actually going to be a successful um, uh, intervention. So we're doing the exact same thing. So that's what I mean by the data. Sometimes we collect the data ourselves. Sometimes when we work with a partner and we say, okay, we're going to, you know, Again, working on the, 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 the SNAP program that um, Colleen and I have mentioned a few times now, you're going to get registration from certain individuals and some of them are not. Well, we're going to use your administrative data to see which of the people uh, um, responded to our, our intervention and which did not. So we actually have real data that we can use. So that, that's, what, that's what I mean by the data. And that's what I mean by being scientific. And and, um, and I think that's just really where the level of science needs to be when you are trying to help and affect so many people. Well, and speaking of behavioral sciences and knowing that people uh, have, you know, both short attention spans and a lot of priorities that they're trying to deal with, how do we then, Colleen, take all this attention for Food Insecurity Awareness Week and make it so it's not just lost once the week ends? Are we able to build upon this and get some momentum to really continue to further affect change? I think food insecurity, uh, you know, requires many levels of, of activism, but at the community level, particularly where we're talking about childhood food insecurity, I think we can meet this need at the community level through the short-term um, emergency food assistance, like we can all uh, be g dig in and help our community in the short term. To be more systematic though, it really requires change at the state and federal level and thinking hard about how are we supporting families, the child tax credit, retraining programs, improving the quality of education, school meals. Uh, I think there's a whole, uh, a whole system here that we really need to fine tune and make sure that what we're doing doesn't just feel good and sound good, but is actually effective. And so I think we need to take this sort of micro approach that the X Lab is using and apply this uh, at each level of policy. But in the short term, I think just give people food. We know it works in the short term. Ultimately, this shouldn't be uh, this shouldn't be what's required. We should figure this out systematically. And so uh, I think we should continue to support broader change. But we should make sure that change is actually going to be effective and doesn't just sound right. It gives me great confidence, uh, and it should the campus community too, knowing that we've got such talented and passionate leaders like Colleen Heflin and Len. Lopo coming in here and really trying to attack these problems and working on partnerships to make sure that we can address these issues. I want to thank you both for making the time to join us on the podcast. Len, keep up the great work with the X Lab and, uh, and thank you for your expertise today. Our Thanks, pleasure. John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John.
Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.